From Treatment Advocacy Center, this is Make Them Hear You, a podcast to uplift the stories and voices of families of color affected by severe mental illness. I'm Sabah Mohammed, Senior Legislative and Policy Counsel and inaugural DJ Jaffe Advocate. Welcome. What's up, advocates? Welcome to today's episode of Make Them Hear You, Black Faces, Not Black Issues, about the experiences of and issues related to engaging in family advocacy and severe mental illness activism while Black. When severe mental illness enters the family, caregivers and individuals with a diagnosis are struck with an overwhelming learning curve and zero resources. I talked with Treatment Advocacy Center's Senior Family Liaison, Kathy Day, on what this experience is like. The way I got into this role is that I have a loved one, a family member, who has schizophrenia. And it's been a challenge since he was diagnosed. He was diagnosed in 2010 at the age of 18. As a family member, Kathy knows about the learning curve. She knows how earth-shattering it can be when severe mental illness suddenly enters the family. When he became ill in 2010, I really had no clue about what was happening to him. I thought maybe he had some depression. There were multiple things going on. He's not my biological child. He is just someone that I call my family member. And I assisted in raising him most of his life. I had no clue at that point about prodrome symptoms. That is the the period of time leading up to the first psychotic episode in which the symptoms are starting to appear. And unless you know what's going on, you can't really know what to look for. Here, Kathy makes an important distinction, knowing what to look for. For Kathy, it was parent advocates who helped to connect her to information on community support. I always say that severe mental illness has an unforgiving learning curve. How are family members getting the education they need to go from family member to caregiver? There are some books out there that are helpful. There are websites that are helpful. The first website I landed on was schizophrenia.com. The uh, support groups in there, the forums, aren't private. So I was very cautious about what I asked about or talked about in there. And then I happened to find some Facebook groups. And I found the wonderful DJ Jaffe, who was helpful. Bless his heart. We lost him last year, and that was just horrible. But he was such a huge factor for me in learning how to advocate outside of my situation and advocate for my loved one and be strong enough and knowledgeable enough to know what I was asking for. Because in the beginning, I didn't know what I was asking for. I didn't know what HIPAA was. I didn't know anything. But through the the advocates I met there and beyond that, there were support groups, too, that were private support groups with other families like me. And I was able to go in there and get support at any time of day. Although our numbers may seem small, there are enough caregiver groups to tailor your experience. You know, there are other outside support groups that maybe they have two groups a month that you can go to. That's not always the best way for support for me. I like to be able to ask right then and get that immediate answer. Because the situations usually require an immediate answer. Another factor for me with life support groups is they're typically local. And I don't necessarily want to run into somebody in the grocery store who may have heard my story or me hearing theirs. Because that could be a little bit awkward. So I like the anonymity of Facebook groups or other social groups. 
I've made friends with people across the country who are actually better friends than the friends I had before the illness because they get it. NAMI has a wonderful program called Family to Family, and it's a class you go to. It's not a support group. You can go there and it's it's structured. Kathy is talking about NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. NAMI was founded in 1979 by a small group of families and is now the nation's largest grassroots mental health organization dedicated to building better lives for the millions of Americans affected by mental illness. It's a national advocacy group, but in addition to NAMI National, there are self-governing chapters, sometimes multiple chapters within each state. You learn the basics. You learn about the illness. You learn somewhat how to advocate for your loved ones. So, you know, that to me is the foundation for anyone who is new to this life of having a loved one with a severe mental illness. That's fundamental. And then reading everything you can, learning everything you can, reaching out to others who are in this situation. And eventually a lot of it's going to click and you're going to get different ideas from different people. It takes a village. We are the village and we have to share and help each other so that we can each help our loved ones. And that was probably a big like soapbox thing for me right there, (laughs) but it's important. That's what we're unpacking today. How the broken system relies on caregivers to do the work of experts. We call ourselves family members and we can't do it alone. Therefore, we rely on what Kathy calls our village. But what happens when the village landscape is largely white and subject to implicit bias. What does family member advocacy look like when we consider racial and cultural differences? To further explore the role of caregiving and creating a community of resources, I interviewed caregiver and mother Margot Dachelle. Margot is both a family member with a story to share and a skilled expert in severe mental illness advocacy. She has served as her son's primary caregiver for over 20 years. Margot tells the story of piecing together her own network of organizations, support, and services to ensure her son's survival. When Margot found that there were few safe spaces to talk about race and severe mental illness, she created her own organizations. Currently, she is on the board of the African American Family Outreach Project, which helps family members of loved ones with a diagnosis of mental illness and substance use disorder access resources through their You Are Not Alone workshop series. She majored in sociology and counseling at Stanford University and thought she would be more prepared for the moment when severe mental illness entered her family. Unfortunately, her experience and education could not prepare her for her son's first episode psychosis when he was all the way across the country. While Margot's experience is much like Kathy's, the racial differences matter. When I ask Margot if she connects with the theory that we as caregivers are an invisible army, she agrees and she has felt invisible since the beginning. I use the phrase that I heard rising up out of the community a couple of years ago, I see you, you know, because we aren't seen and we're not acknowledged. That's the other part of the invisibility. And you do it, you do it, but it is wonderful when somebody recognizes what it is that you're doing and the struggle, the strength that you are manifesting. And so that was my introduction. You know, we see you. If you faced aggression in the home and didn't want to tell anybody, we see you. 
if you've had strange things disappear out of the house, including money from your purse that ordinarily your loved one wouldn't be engaged in. We see you. Your loved one has gone to jail and you're not that kind of family. We, we see, you know, what you've been going through. That's that side of invisibility. So I like it so much. I agree. That's how I felt when I first found the Treatment Advocacy Center. I was like, wow, there is an organization out here who is saying exactly what I've been looking for. And it took so long to find them. They were such a beacon of light. When did you realize that you had become first a family member to a loved one with a diagnosis of severe mental illness and then an advocate to a loved one with a diagnosis of severe mental illness? Well, it's a little more than 25 years ago. I realized that something was wrong, and that's my nature to fix things. This is not going to happen. At that time, my son was at Morehouse. I thought things were going very well. He really wanted to go there, and he liked it there. He had a good social network, and then I could see that on the phone, something wasn't right. He was overly emotional. He was sobbing. He People were looking at him funny, and I thought it was the stress of school. These are the know-what-to-look-for symptoms Kathy referenced. They are easy to overlook in the Black community, where mental health is often seen as a sign of weakness and therapy is taboo. So immediately, I was engaged. He didn't want me to come. Morehouse is a man's school, and I think that there are some downsides to the mentality that at that time some of the young men have. You don't want mother coming to school. Father would be okay, but not mother coming and looking after you. It's also important to know the role college plays in psychosis. It's not that college is triggering. It's the age in which psychosis presents that makes college an important institution in addressing first episode psychosis and severe mental illness. Typically in males, it's between the ages of 16 and 24. Females have a little later onset, typically Mm -hmm. between 22 and 30. But you can see how both of those ages overlap college years. If I have a family member, a parent in California, and they do, like you say, have a loved one at college in Georgia, They sometimes don't even hear about anything having to do with this mental illness until that psychotic episode hits or a crisis happens. Because kids that go to college, you don't often expect to hear from them because they're enmeshed in their college life. If it is a college student, I suggest that they contact the school nurse and maybe have that nurse do an intervention checkup on that person, that loved one. I also look to see if there's an early intervention clinic nearby that they could possibly arrange to get their loved one into. Those are outpatient, not inpatient. So the challenge is in getting them to go. There's NAMI on campus. They have chapters on campuses of the larger schools. Sometimes there are friends or family local to the person with the illness. And I try to ask and ask and ask till I can find out if there's someone there. Sometimes it's a good friend that went off to college with them. And so the parents know that good friend and they can get in touch with them and just at least to get information. When you're geographically separated from them, it's just so much harder because you can't go and talk to a doctor. You can't go and talk to a crisis team and have them help you get your loved one into treatment. We hear stories from parents of adult children every day about this terrifying reality. 
Your child is away at school or on their own, away from home for the first time, and you think everything is going fine. Until suddenly, it isn't fine. But figuring out what to do from afar is a real challenge. You may not be close enough to observe what's happening. Your loved one may not be accurately perceiving or reporting what is going on. But they're your only window into what's wrong. And as many parents discover, that moment that a juvenile crosses the line into adulthood, your parental rights to get critical information about your child evaporates. Margot soon discovered just how difficult distance can be when navigating severe mental illness and the mental health system. I had to work remotely to get him to see somebody and the person didn't recognize. He said, it's just something light. You know, this is not anything serious. It's just something light. Unfortunately, dismissiveness and misdiagnosis are prevalent in the Black community. Like Margot, her son was a passionate scholar. He was attending Morehouse College, a highly competitive historically Black college. And when medical professionals are overworked, underpaid, and have personal biases, misdiagnosis is just another disparity Black families face. What was your son like in high school before he graduated and on his way to Morehouse? He had really strong aptitudes, much stronger than mine had been. Very strong quantitative skills, had good SATs, and had started even then with a community consciousness He'd gotten on the school newspaper and did a little advocating. It made me so proud. He took that to Morehouse, that idea of wanting to be relevant to community, went into the joint engineering program with Morehouse. So he did three years at Morehouse with a math major. You know, he was uh, quite a strong student. And then things went down and there was one semester where there were a lot of poor grades and I, I couldn't quite understand what had happened. I thought it was too much social life. I had no idea what was bubbling up there. And it took me six months to get him home. Margot was successful getting her son home. She planned to get treatment and get him back to his bright future. I had a degree in mental health counseling, so I had not much understanding of what to do when it's in my backyard, but I had a feeling of competence. I, I had more feeling of competence than I actually had. Margot's confidence was key in successfully advocating for her son, but she would hit a barrier when it came to his engagement in his own treatment. There was no cooperation you know, I guess the paranoia had seeped in. I, I didn't know what he was thinking, but he was silent. He wasn't talking to me and wouldn't see anybody, not a medical doctor, not anything. So I had to find a way to force it with a 5150. 5150 refers to the California Welfare Code. This means that legal action can be taken to make someone receive a psychiatric evaluation, regardless of whether that person wants the evaluation or not. This legal action is only able to be taken when someone is having a mental illness emergency. In the Black community, we are over-policed, and many are fearful of what will happen when law enforcement is called on one of our own community members. Here, Marco does exactly what any Black community member is told not to do and must call law enforcement on a member of her own household. 
Even the most well-intentioned acts become chilling in the Black community when law enforcement are asked to become involved. So I was engaged and prepared to advocate, but the main advocacy was with him. It was just really difficult. It took months and months and months before I could get him to see somebody, and that was only through a 5150. Thinking of the times you've needed crisis response without police encounters and how crisis response moves from crisis to emergency, what are you looking forward to with the 988 crisis response hotline? There is talk. There is a burgeoning movement to have non-police crisis response here. And that would have helped me a lot if there had been outside people coming to say, listen, young man, these are some options for you. People could come that he could have related to, not a mother, but someone that might have seemed like a peer. It would have helped a lot. We didn't have that 25 years ago. It had to be a 5150 and they weren't coming back. If they could have continued to come back, the crisis team and talk to him and say, let's follow up. It would have helped a lot, but those services weren't there. Now, in the aftermath of the George Floyd and so forth, there's a lot of looking at the police as maybe not the best solution. It's unfortunate that it takes tragedies like that for us to realize that there's been something wrong all along. It's been so tragic. And because of that, So many people haven't called for a 5150 because they just can't trust it. They can't take the risk. They're coming in, you know, guns pulled. Have you ever called other people to help you instead of calling for involuntary commitment? No, I didn't have that option. I didn't have anybody I could Mm. call. I mean, I had family, I had brother, I had nephew, but it wouldn't have worked. My son's a big fellow, and he could get very aggressive at the time. He could be very threatening. He had violence on his mind, and I couldn't put anybody in that position. Without resources, parents navigating severe mental illness have no choice but to utilize police as a part of their village of caregivers. It's something Kathy first struggled with as a family member and now as family liaison for the Treatment Advocacy Center. So my go-to was calling the cops. And I always hated having to do that because I felt this is a medical illness. Why am I calling law enforcement? But that's what I was advised. And throughout his illness, I've unfortunately had too many encounters with law enforcement. Mostly good and some not so good. Due to the increase in police violence on people with severe mental illness, there is a movement across the United States to remove law enforcement from crisis response and instead invest funding into emergency and preventative mental health services. In the current defund movement, community organizers often suggest that mental health crises are something that can be addressed by neighbors or willing community members. While medical community resources are ideal, no one with a diagnosis of severe mental illness deserves a non-professional response. This is one of the things I think is important to discuss frankly if we're going to have a real examination of what's different about advocating for your loved one with severe mental illness for families of color. 
Apart from being terrified about what might happen if you have to call the police, there is a lot of social pressure from our communities not to involve law enforcement. Those pressures make perfect sense if you think about where that fear comes from. But it puts those of us dealing with loved ones in psychosis in an impossible position. If my loved one won't agree to seek treatment, but their behavior gets scary or dangerous, in most places, the only option we have is to call the police for help, knowing that this is very dangerous for our loved one. I think this is a pretty universal fear for all families dealing with severe mental illness. But for marginalized people, not only is our risk of harm during a law enforcement encounter statistically higher, but we also know that our community is not going to approve of making that call. This terrible position between a rock and a hard place is what I call the untenable space we've created for BIPOC families affected by severe mental illness. Live in fear of or for our loved ones as they get sicker and sicker or ask for help from police and pray that it doesn't lead to a preventable tragedy. Were there ever times you hesitated yourself and maybe did not call and just decided to let the, the crisis play out instead of utilizing the police? I did, yeah. There were times when I thought, well, I'm not going to do this again. There were also times that I, I could have left him in the hospital and made sure he got into a step-down facility, and I went with his pleas, his promises, much too early, and it probably did great damage in the long run because he would get off of treatment as soon as he'd get home. Give yourself a lot of grace for that. As caregivers, as mothers especially, my mom has always been guilty of that. It's not your place to make these medical decisions. And we believe our loved ones. We want to believe those promises. We want to believe they're still in there and capable and that the anosognosia or the lack of insight can just be dismissed. It, it's very difficult. It's very difficult, particularly if we're not informed. I just learned about anosognosia in recent years, maybe seven years ago, I knew that he wasn't recognizing things, but to have that concept really solidified things for me. And I, I didn't have it early on. The lack of family education really made a difference. So that was one of the things that did help me as soon as I could get into NAMI's family education program. I was trained about 1997 by NAMI's director of education here, the first group in Northern California trained to teach the family to family course. When was your son in Morehouse? What year? He went in in 91. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that is a big recommendation that I have. It's such a long learning journey and I'm still learning. And I think that's the most important thing we can say to families. Get the material from the Treatment Advocacy Center. Get into a NAMI educational program. Get into a support group. I've learned so much from family peers that you don't learn from the doctors. The time it took for Margot to encounter a simple concept, anosognosia, is unacceptable and not Margot's fault. Anosognosia is a symptom 
that makes it nearly impossible for our loved ones to understand they are sick. It's not denial, it's knowing. In my loved one's case, he knew his skin was covered in scales. He knew our mother was somehow no longer his mother. There is no reason why, at the time of his diagnosis, Margot couldn't have been given all of the information she needed up front by the medical professionals. One of the most important things we can do for ourselves and our loved ones is get information, to do reading, to be in a support group where there's so much that people who have gone before can share. You know, that's been really important for me. Definitely. Um, the NAMI family to family, it was bittersweet. It was still in my angry period because I wanted the answers for my brother, not for me, but my God, it was valuable. I mean, just absolutely priceless, the family to family training. You mentioned not wanting to reveal the behavior because you didn't want to tell others. Were you trying to protect his dignity, yours? What was it? Stigma? Yeah, I was so afraid that he wouldn't be able to integrate back into social life with his friends, with people who knew that he'd be ostracized. And so I tried to keep it. And of course, I couldn't. You know, he'd go into the hospital and he'd call any and everybody and ask him to come get him out and talk about me, of course. And so there was no way to keep it. Yes, that was a, a tough weight to carry. I remember not being able to say it out loud. For me personally, it caused panic attacks. And the first time someone said, how's your brother? And instead of saying fine, I said, oh, he's recently diagnosed with schizophrenia. I, I had not breathed a sigh of relief like that probably in about four or five years of just clenching that, that secret so tightly. What we're talking about here is stigma. But stigma is a tricky concept to be clear on because it doesn't mean the same thing in every context. In this context, we mean stigma from our own community, the specific way that BIPOC communities have biases about people diagnosed with mental illness or even people who seek treatment or therapy. This is apart from the general stigma issues that exist in society toward mental illness or from systemic stigma which is really discrimination that we all face in our health system when trying to get treatment for psychiatric, psychological, or substance use disorder issues. In my community, this can tie into notions of black masculinity and not feeling like you can appear weak with your peers. You mentioned about the man's school and I've run a lot into these sort of problematic arguments. There's a lot of attention to support men's mental health. Have you engaged in any specialized work groups around black malehood, stigma, toxic patriarchy, any of that in helping your son? I'm aware of it. In male environments, there is toxic masculinity. You've got to be strong. You've got to be able to feel superior to women. You've got to be involved in conquests. That probably creates a lot of internal conflict for young men who also have human feelings and sensitivities to women. What I did is I, I got a man who was an older student. He was a student of mine and he was an older man. He had a very deep voice. He was somebody in recovery and had a good heart. And I paid him to relate to my son. And immediately my son would respond. 
immediately this deep voice, all of the rejection that I experienced was gone. And it was so unfortunate. He died. The man died. I guess within six months, it was terrible. But I do advise that of people to try to see if they can get a peer that matches their son or daughter that they can hear outside of the parental voice. That's really important in the process, finding other people our loved ones can relate to, because what you say, like, so they can hear the message, it comes from what you say when we see you, because we all have different ways that we see our loved ones, and they do need to see themselves reflected somewhere in society. So was NAMI the first organization that you worked with? That is what helped me so much. The leader was a a social worker who had been through this with her son, and it was just enormously helpful where to find a psychiatrist, where to look for activities, these centers where people can engage in treatment and activities outside of a clinic. It was just so worthwhile. And then eventually nominated from the group to go into this training to do family to family. I've been with NAMI up through, I think, July of this year, so probably 25 years with NAMI. I just left over this racial issue. They didn't want to deal with the police. They were invited to come talk to the police, have a nice talk with the police. And they didn't want to raise issues or ask hard questions. When it's a big issue, if you look at it statistically, many, many more stops of African-Americans, particularly men, on the street, arrest for spurious reasons. So they didn't want to deal with that. And the leader called me without even asking how I would handle things. She just said she was opposed to any kind of confrontation. Reluctance to address police violence or racial disparities is no more an issue for NAMI or any specific NAMI chapter than it is for other advocacy groups in the mental health space. It's just the group most people know. And instances of lack of inclusiveness exist in basically all advocacy spaces. NAMI as a whole practices inclusivity. Guided by the advocacy of the late B.B. Moore Campbell, NAMI established NAMI Urban Los Angeles, which centers multicultural mental illness experiences. Daniel H. Gillison Jr., the CEO of NAMI, has been a thought leader in addressing racism and implicit bias within our field. I admit that at times it has been puzzling to me why there would be such a reluctance on the part of non-BIPOC advocates in a multitude of different fields of advocacy to frankly address the role of race or other sources of marginalization without their broader policy areas. When Treatment Advocacy Center reports that individuals with a diagnosis of severe mental illness are 16 times more likely than average citizens to be killed during a police encounter, That number largely represents white individuals with a diagnosis of severe mental illness. Violent police responses are a marginalized people problem. Logically, wouldn't white families and advocates want to address that? Why are white organizations finding that difficult? It is just very difficult. And I've seen powerful, wonderful advocates sit up there in a meeting and say, why would you need an African-American 
health clinic, mental health clinic. Why would you need that? You have Asian and Latino people. Those are languages. African-Americans are Americans. Why would you need something distinct? And I can't begin to answer the question. The misunderstanding, the invisibility of the African-American is so profound. I felt this invisibility when I first entered the small world of severe mental illness advocacy. I found a Facebook group that finally seemed to address my issues. But I hit the limit of what the advocates were comfortable talking about when I asked caregivers to freely imagine a non-police response. And they refused, insisting that police should be involved, even in an imagined utopia with unlimited funds and resources, there was no safe space to exclude police from a medical emergency. Next, it was when advocates insisted that severe mental illness affected us all the same, regardless of race. After that, I left the group without saying a word and decided it was better to advocate alone. By myself was better than invisible within a whole. People in BIPOC families are often shut out of healthcare systems, generally in ways that others aren't. When early identification and intervention during a first episode of psychosis are critical to a good prognosis, it matters whether there is meaningful access to diagnosis and treatment. If you then consider that people of color who won't volunteer for treatment are a lot more likely to be arrested than hospitalized and a lot more likely if they are hospitalized to be misdiagnosed, I think we have to admit that severe mental illness really doesn't affect all people in the same way. But acknowledging that in no way minimizes the impact of severe mental illness on other families. We gain nothing by looking at our loved ones as being in competition with one another for compassion. And the good news is that if we manage to build a system that does a good job of getting help to Margot's son, it will also do a good job of getting help to people who are less marginalized than he is. A rising tide lifts all boats. Margot's advocacy is rooted in her culture and her experience as it should be. What inspired you to go into in sociology at Berkeley? Looking for social solutions. I guess that I was very early on sensitized to social problems for African-Americans. And so I went into sociology looking for tools to help. Now, mind you that when I went to the University of California, there wasn't one course available to study African-Americans. So it was by proxy, learning about social movements, learning about social problems. I was trying to put together an understanding of how to help the situation. Black and white advocates have a lot of common ground in their experiences. Crisis, untreated loved ones, a broken system. The main difference is the path which got them to that common ground. Those differences in their journey matter. Racism and cultural exclusion come with being treated as other, a subtopic, something that can wait, just like Margot's desire to have a meaningful conversation about police engagement was treated as less important. I grew up in Berkeley, where we were about 20% of the population. And 
we were quite marginalized in schools. There was neighborhood segregation. There was de facto segregation in the schools. And I knew I wasn't always perceived for having abilities and also trying to find ways, I guess, to solve my own problems. So I went into sociology, and that probably led me to later on doing the work in mental health counseling. And even as a teacher of sociology and African-American studies, I was learning to understand the journey that I'd been through, my family had been through, our people had been through. It was a way of nurturing myself, I guess I would say. As an individual or an organization attempts to access diversity, equity, and inclusion practices, they will discover that finding the answers is not as easy as being Black or being compassionate about racism. It's very important for us to realize the social science behind this, that simply being Black does not give us the answers to being dismissed from this cultivation of social science and clinicians and providers, that just by virtue of being Black, you don't have the answers, but we have to come out and sort of build them as we advocate. Yeah, that's what they mean by structural problem systemic problems, systemic racism, the marginalization of our interests within the institutions. We are comfortable working in multiple languages. The county system has had focus groups among the Afghan population and the Asian and the Latino population. And I asked for their focus groups among African-Americans. We're the ones that are in the mental health jail and getting the high rates of 5150s. We said, oh, no, we don't have a provider that we didn't know where to turn. This is in 2021. And our system is just that opaque, I guess. The people are just that oblivious. We're talking about highly capable people, highly paid people running aspects of the department. So they ran support groups. And when did they run them? 10 in the morning. Mm. And so where would you get working people, working families freed up at 10 in the morning to participate? Here, Margot mentions a vital part of diversity, outreach and inclusion. Belonging. Belonging has been defined as the feeling of security and support when there is a sense of acceptance, inclusion, and identity for a member of a certain group. It is when an individual can bring their authentic self to an organization. To foster an atmosphere of belonging and inclusion, advocacy organizations can do simple things like being careful to hold in-person meetings at times when working people can attend and in locations that are accessible for whether or not they have a car or disability. In our new world of normalized Zoom participation, that may be getting easier, but it's still important to record meetings for advocates who might not be able to stream them as readily. But most importantly, if we want advocates from marginalized communities to feel like they belong, we just can't ignore the issues that they identify as having the biggest impact on their families. This is what is so difficult. The main one that I am facing is the issue of policing and the disproportionate burden of violent policing that we experience in the African-American community. 
And people let me talk in these groups that I've been in. They let me talk, and then we just move on. No one picks it up. It's disappointing, is what I would say. You've once told me that you join these organizations and they want the Black person, but not the Black issues. Forums have been organized so that we can routinely present our issues. That main one of policing that's particular to African-Americans isn't heard. The issue of how to work, that issue of over-medication of African-Americans is not heard. Our medical director here, the lead psychiatrist, uh, did say he felt that his colleagues still used medication. There were instances of using it as a pacification measure, but the idea of organizing people to see how that could be addressed systemically isn't there. There is not the critical mass in the the NAMI groups. And there's another group here that's very large and it's been organized very nicely. It's got 68 people and it's got real potential for power. And the leader tells me she understands white privilege and that she wants to deal with this issue around structural racism. But no one picks up on the specifics as they come up. And it's demoralizing. It's demoralizing. And there are so many issues where we have a common agenda. BIPOC silence is what Margot is referring to. The tacit expectation that the advocates of color in a larger group won't rock the boat with issues related to race or marginalization that don't necessarily affect the entire group. The idea that we can't address those issues until we've addressed all the issues faced by all members of the group because it might put our loved ones in competition for limited resources and limited empathy, limited focus. This happens to all marginalized groups, women, people of color, people with co-occurring disorders. I think there's an apprehension among the larger group that if we can't provide a simple message, we will lose the attention of lawmakers or the media. But for our family members, These are life and death issues. These are the things we need to focus on for our loved ones to survive. This type of silence is especially demoralizing, as Marco puts it. When it comes to our village of caregivers, all we have is family members' support. I was once like Marco. I also felt like other advocates wanted a Black face, but not Black issues. I want to suggest that we don't need to do this. We don't need to ask parts of our severe mental illness community to stay quiet about certain parts of their experience. I've come to understand that many white advocates just aren't sure what needs to be done, but are very willing to listen and reevaluate. I've discovered more discomfort than discord, more avoidance than anger. So now is the perfect time to listen and work together. That's what this podcast is all about. I really hope that advocates of all backgrounds listen to Margot's story about her son, but also about how sometimes her village has let her down when it didn't have to. I believe that these stories will motivate our entire severe mental illness community. When we run into a topic that causes that rush of discomfort to reflect more on what the source of that discomfort really is, sometimes doing that can free you to set it aside. 
I asked Marco how her son is doing now. He has made a lot of progress. I had him come home when the pandemic started because he lives in a group situation. And he is so much better. And I attribute it to the doctor listening to me and adding an antidepressant into his regime. He was much more rational. He participated in the home. He took over tasks. The argumentation that I was accustomed to wasn't there. Just about very basic things he would argue illogically, and it's kind of thing that wears one down, but that wasn't there anymore. So much better. Oh, that's wonderful. So you you can absolutely have a conversation with your son. Yeah, we have conversations. He goes to a program and he gets a weight, and it's very good. I often found those irrational conversations with my loved one to be, in their own special way, the most troubling part of the diagnosis. They just unravel you while you sit there trying to figure out where your loved one is inside of these irrational arguments. Yeah, I would get engaged and, yes. and try to make, you know, try to argue the point. And, you know, it was just very. Yeah, you, you get lost when you don't have the <laughs> language. I believe it was the book, I'm Not Sick and I Don't Need Help. I once yes. had a 25 minute conversation with my brother on how it was impossible for him to have walked to school when he was four years old by himself and to have become a father at 10. He was very convinced that he was the father of some of the boys in one of these young boy band groups. I think mindless behavior. And like my body was shaking and I didn't know how to get out of it. It will really take you there. And that was a big piece of learning that you cannot argue with a delusion. Yes. You, you can't do it. If you're looking for answers about how to communicate through delusions, the book I'm Not Sick and I Don't Need Help by Javier Amador teaches the LEAP method. You can find more information in Dr. Amador's TED Talk. Dr. Lloyd Setterer also has a TED Talk entitled When Mental Illness Enters the Family. It helps family members navigate severe mental illness. Corian Powers also gives advice on loving and communicating through severe mental illness on her website, corianpowers.com. I asked Margo for her assessment of how things are going for advocates today who are faced by so many complicated and emotional issues. I think young people are getting it. I think the tremendous movement around George Floyd was so important that we saw the sensitivity of young people of all races understanding this. I see it here with young people who are part of the movement to decarcerate Alameda County to get mentally ill people out of jail and understanding the racial dynamic there. I see it with young people, but I don't see it with older people. People 40s, 50s, 60s, I don't. It's just very difficult for people to see, people to respect. It's the systemic part. I always say the harms of racism are just on autopilot. They're so seamless and elegant in our society that we will fight to insist that they're not there. And then we'll yeah. question the harm all around us that comes from not simply acknowledging it. Yeah. And of course, we've got a reaction now in our society where they're going in and trying to erase any of the educational strands that would help people understand it. 
the history is very important and we're seeing movements that want to take away a deeper look into the African-American experience in this country. And I guess part of it is psychological. People do not want to look at something that might make them feel guilty. It's something that I advocate for, and it's an uphill struggle. It's been an uphill struggle, but Margot has achieved so much in support of our severe mental illness community, and she's made sure that her advocacy is inclusive and will benefit people with severe mental illness who are so often left behind in broader conversations. All along, I've been working with the Mental Health Association of Alameda County, and I was asked to lead an African-American support group. So I did that until last year. They'd go have a focus group here and a focus group there, and that wasn't going to bring the issues forward. So I organized leaders from all of the NAMIs to get involved in the process of advocating for what we wanted So that was very important, and that went on for about seven or eight years. It was called the Alameda County Family Coalition. In 2006, we got to the table, and one of the things we said we needed was a family education and resource center. And we got it. It's the only one in the state. And they have a staff of family advocates. The grant was given to the Mental Health Association. And it manages the grant. It's over a million dollars a year. It's independent of the county, but it gets the funding from the county. And the family advocates are fantastic. They'll go to the school with a parent and help negotiate if there is a learning problem. They'll go to the jail with a family. They go to the courts. They get in the trenches like nobody else can do. They have support groups. But the main thing is they go one-on-one with a family member. It's just a tremendous service. It would have been of great help to me had it been in existence. And so those are the things we know as family members, what we need. How do you sort of reconcile the notion that you're advocating for your son, but essentially so it won't happen to another family? Your son may not be the primary beneficiary or it's late by 25 years, but you still do this work for others. Yeah, and I guess it's my way of helping others and helping myself. I still learn. I probably saved my son's life. It's what I've learned. I mean, at one point, he drank a whole bottle of pills of his medication and only because I knew things, and by that time I knew who to call and ask. And as I talk with others and hear their experience, I get insights myself. So it's helping others. And it's also in my history, I guess, since my college days, the idea of advocacy, the importance in the community of African Americans, the importance of spreading the word I guess it's in my DNA (laughs) to do that. That's where the hope comes from, to think you can make things better by sharing. I'm so glad hope is in your DNA. Yes, and I want to say that about your brother. We don't give up hope. I don't care how long it takes. And my son is an example of that. I would have never thought he would get out of that irrational state, that disorganized state where he would argue that the sky was not blue. Mm. 
And a lot of it has to do with getting the medication right. Is there anything else that you want us to know that you think is important for the future of severe mental illness and families? I think it's very important to get our loved ones in spaces where they are validated and where they have meaning and where they are doing things that they feel are important and are recognized. So that is something that I really advocate for, for them to get into social circumstances where they are important. And so I think I sent you the article where I set up a pilot program where I had music and I brought in a man who with a keyboard and they created their songs from the song, I've Got a Friend, Wade in the Water, whatever it was, they created the songs and would decide what to sing. And then you could recognize them. Hey, I like that baritone over there. <laughs> All right. And people would be singled out to solo and recognized. They had an art table with many options and they were recognized there. They created a community and the principals could recognize them, but peers could recognize them. And we saw great movement. We had stipends for a few people who would bring service to the program and would set up the coffee or what have you. And there was, you know, a little money for them, which was very important on these low SSI stipends. This money was not even enough to keep them out of poverty. So that's what we need. We need within family and within community ways of acknowledging people as people, not as ill people, but as people. And that really supports growth. It really does. And for you, the involuntary commitment, as well as the recognition of the need for independence has all been a part of your son's recovery process, a part of your village, your army of invisible caregivers. Right. Oh, I couldn't. Without the involuntary treatment, nothing would have happened. He's been out of it now for over 20 years. So last commitment was about 20 years ago. Now that is definitely hopeful. Wow. I cannot hear stuff like that enough. That's great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sabah. It's been a wonderful conversation. It helps me reflect. And these conversations help us think about where we are and where we're going, you know, because growth is important. Margot created new focused advocacy organizations and new resources when the issues she identified as being the most important for her community were not being prioritized within existing advocacy structures. All of our severe mental illness community will benefit from what she created and accomplished. But moving forward, it doesn't need to be this way. We don't need to balkanize our efforts, and we shouldn't. What we should do is dream bigger than we have been. Demand a system that can reach the most marginalized with severe mental illness, because that system can reach everyone else too. So I want to invite our entire severe mental illness community to resist the impulse to splinter and work hard to stay together. We need a big, united front to get anything done. And that means we need to be bigger than our divisions. That sometimes has meant that our BIPOC advocates didn't feel included 
or that sense of belonging when issues of great importance to them were not prioritized by others. We don't want that. Our severe mental illness community has to include everyone impacted by severe mental illness. We need each other. We need our village. Thank you for joining us on Make Them Hear You. Be a part of our severe mental illness community. If you have not felt welcome in the past, let's give it another try. Treatment Advocacy Center is a national nonprofit organization that helps protect family members affected by severe mental illness against a healthcare and legal system stacked against them. For more information, resources, or to get involved, please visit our website at www.treatmentadvocacycenter.org. I'm Sabah Muhammad. Until next time, only good things.